0: All right, morning everybody. Morning. We'll wait for you to get your treats, Mary Lou. <laughs> no, you're uh. Well, you know, the fault is just as much mine because I like to talk, so <laughs> sometimes it's good, and a lot of the time it's not. <laughs> No, actually, you can get by without a hymnal today, but you'll for sure need a Bible. All right, got it. Absolutely, we'll need a Bible. Okay, let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again, we'll pray. O Lord, you have set before us the great hope that your kingdom shall come on earth and have taught us to pray for its coming. Give us grace to discern the signs of its dawning, and to work for the perfect day when your will shall be done on earth as it is in heaven. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay. Um, this is, just a little bit of housekeeping here, this is the last catechumenate until the new year, if you have looked at your schedules uh, Catechumenate will start up again, I think it's January 7th. I think that's a Saturday. So um, we'll have a couple weeks off here for Christmas, and I'll be out of town after Christmas. We're heading to Wisconsin, so it just makes things easier to take a little bit of a holiday break. So we'll get back together after today. I mean, hopefully, I'll see you for. Christmas and whatnot, but for class, we'll get back together again um, in in January, okay? Uh, So, quick uh, recap of just a couple things. This is also going to be our last class on baptism, so if you have questions about baptism, now's the time to get them out, because we're not, we're sort of like, you know, uh, what I have said for the last couple weeks. Baptism is motion. This class is kind of like that. We have so much that we talk about that we only kind of move one direction, and that's forward. (laughs) So, uh, one thing to remember, the actor in baptism is the Lord. Baptism is the Lord's work for his people. It isn't the work of the person who is being baptized, and frankly, it isn't the work of the pastor either. Uh, it is the work of the Lord. The Lord does that. Uh, he is the one. So bath- baptism is then received and it's not enacted. You don't go to baptism and, uh, and be the one that causes something to happen. You are the one rather, who receives the something that does happen there. Uh, what God gives there is always a gift, and what that means is, if it's gift, there's no merit. If there's merit, then it isn't a gift, it's a reward. And baptism is not a reward, it is purely gift. There's a great quote from the late Lutheran theologian Norman Nagel. He used to teach at the seminary in St. Louis. Uh, We have two seminaries in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, one in Fort Wayne, Indiana, one in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, in case you got it confused with the other St. Louis. <laughs> uh, so we've got the two. Norman Nagel taught there at St. Louis. He said, you are nothing if not given to. You are nothing if not given to. All theology is gift. That's, that's you know, These little aphorisms are things I want to stick in you to remember. All theology is gift and you are nothing if not given to. That's the way everything works. You are receiving gifts from somebody who is giving them to you. Uh, Baptism is death. Remember, my most favorite thing in all the world, if you die before you die, you don't die when you die. It's the solution to the problem of you being a raccoon. If you die before you die, you don't die when you die. How do you die before you die? It's in baptism. Baptism is death before death. It's death to the self, death to sin, and death to death. So you die with Christ in your baptism, you are buried with Christ, and then you also rise with Christ by virtue of your baptism. Baptism is motion. I just made a joke about this. Now is the real deal. Baptism is motion. You start here, and then you end here, and it's kind of like, you know, when you take math or geometry or whatever, there's a line, and if you think about a line, what kind of a cap do you put on each side of a line? You put arrows, why? Because a line is infinite in both directions. Your timeline looks like this, because time will go backwards and it'll go this way. And you're just concerned with what is right here. The Christian life is not a line, it is a ray. An array has a dot, because that's the point where it starts and then it goes out with an arrow because it's infinite. That's the way baptism is. It does start, it starts here, and then it just keeps going. So baptism is the beginning of your motion because baptism is the point at which you go from death to life. You go into Jesus, remember the language of Paul, into is motion, and then when you are in Jesus, Jesus, which means you are baptized, then your ray continues, because now you're living the new life. You're walking the way, and it keeps on going. What happens in baptism is that the name of God is put on you. Remember, there's a lot of importance with the name. The name is power. If somebody has your name, I just read something uh, I was, I, here's, so let me tell you a quick story. Here's the problem with having as many books in your study as I do. Even when they are all obsessively cataloged and labeled, <laughs> somehow they still get lost in plain sight and you forget what you have and you forget where it is and sometimes you even forget what you have read. So I was looking for something else this week and in searching through my shelves for the one thing I was looking for, I discovered another book that I had read that I loved when I read it but I had completely forgotten about so I took it out and reread it and realized I love it still. <laughs> and in that book uh, this fella says something about his name and he says, when somebody knows your name, they have power over you. And the example of that is, if you're walking down the street and somebody yells your name, what do you do? You stop and turn around. That's what they did to you. They used your name to get you to stop and to look and then to hold conversation. But it all begins with the name. That's what baptism does. It gives you the name of God to use, to have and to hold, almost marital language. The longer you go through this class, the more you'll realize that Christianity is not a reflection of marriage. Marriage is a reflection of Christianity, of the love of God for his people. So, your name has power, you're, you're given it, but it, or the, the name of the Lord has power, you're, you're given that name, but it's also put on you physically, it's a brand. The iron is in the fire, and when you come to baptism, it's taken out and it goes right on your forehead. And you can't get rid of it, that's why I say brand instead of tattoo. You can sort of kind of get rid of a tattoo, but you can't with a brand, a brand is there forever. And that's what baptism is. So the name is put upon you. And what's the deal about where God's name is put? Do you remember? The story from the Bible is the dedication of Solomon's temple. The Lord attaches a promise to his name. Where my name is, he says, there I will Well, The Lord lives where his name is. That's why you don't need to worry about the temple anymore because where does the Lord dwell? In you. And as St. Paul then says, you are temples of the Lord because the name is now on you. And I told you about this in church. This is the hand of blessing. You can see it in in icons, what Jesus' hand looks like, this is the name of Jesus. First and last letters of Jesus Christus, Jesus Christ, spelled out in the Greek, with a hand. It's the physical name of Jesus. When the benediction is given to you, the name of Jesus is there, and when you make the sign of the cross and it traces the same direction that the name goes, it's like the name is touching you. Everything's about touch, physicality. Jesus isn't just spirit that floats around. And he doesn't want to be only spirit that floats around. He wants to be with you. He wants to join himself to you. He wants to touch you. And he can't actually be your God if he doesn't. So even the name is something that is physical and is put on you. And uh, and uh, is the marker then that you belong to God, but that God also dwells in you. In Christ you are no longer a slave of sin. That's what you used to be, now you're not. And remember this was the big point that I made, you now have a will that is different, where once the only thing that you knew, uh, this is the exact opposite of what was in Eden, remember, in Eden the only thing that they knew was Good, yeah. The only thing they knew was good. So it was inevitable that to eat of the knowledge of good and evil before they were ready to do it would be bad for them. All they knew was good and now their eyes are open to evil. And their progeny, which is you, us, I'm not removed from that, (laughs) Um, we are their children. That means we're like them, which means now living after the fall, we really don't know good. You only know evil. But when you are baptized, it's like partaking of the fruit of the garden. Are you stretching that caramel? Okay, you are Strange. (laughs) Um, When you are baptized, it's like partaking of a new fruit. It's like Paul having the scales fall out of your eyes. Now what you used to be blind to and ignorant of, which is good, now you know. And that's why baptism is a fabulous thing for you, but also a very bad thing for you. Uh, and I say bad because it makes your life hard. Baptism is not the thing that then makes your life really easy. That's the beginning of a difficult life because now you know what is evil and you know that it is evil because you know what is good. Your eyes are now opened to a deeper reality and yet your flesh, again that big word is concupiscence, you have this inner desire still to sin. St. Paul says it best when he says the good that I would do is what I don't do and the very thing I don't want to do that's the thing I do. And you, you know you want to sh- grab yourself by the scruff and shake yourself looking in the bathroom mirror and go what's the matter with you? And that's what St. Paul says I, I, what's the matter with me? Come on I know I know better than that and yet I, I still do the things I know I shouldn't do and you always will But baptism is the beginning of a war, a war within yourself and it's your entrance into the war around you because the brand is now the mark of your general. Your life is not going to get easier once you pick a side and join the war, your life gets more difficult. If you want a really good example of that and the idea of war, you should read, book by C.S. Lewis called That Hideous Strength, which is the third book in what's called the Ransom Trilogy, or popularly called the Space Trilogy, which was what he wrote after the Chronicles of Narnia. It's not as childish, and I mean by childish I mean that in the, in the best of ways as the Chronicles of Narnia. It's much more mature than those books, but they are very good, but that hideous strength uh, is all about the war and picking the side and what happens. So that's, that's all of that is baptism. And what that means for you now is now because you know what is good and in knowing what is good you also then can recognize what is evil, the stuff that you didn't think about that you thought maybe was just this is how it is, now you know, wait a minute, now that's actually wrong. And um, what that means now is you have a new will because you actually can choose not to sin. This is extremely important. You can choose not to sin, but you cannot choose never to sin. The difference between those two is this. Choosing not to sin is faced with the opportunity for sin, or to use biblical language, faced with the opportunity to touch evil and running away from it instead and touching something that is good. That is choosing not to sin. Choosing never to sin is always making that decision 100 percent of the time. You can make that decision in a limited capacity but you can never choose to do it all of the time, all day, every day, for the rest of your life. You will still sin, but now you are in a position to actively reject the things that are evil and repent when it is that you do sin, and the way that you know that you have sinned is because you know what is good and what is evil. So this is why this is the last class about baptism, is because When you start to realize, hey, I have a will, and I actually can choose to to sin or choose not to sin, then when you choose to sin, what do you do after that? It all leads to confession and absolution, which is what we'll begin on once we get back after Christmas. So uh, what we're going to then do today is focus on baptism slightly differently All of these other weeks that we've been talking about baptism have been uh, a little bit philosophical and theological, which, to sum it up in one word, would be what is the spiritual side of baptism. But today, this last day, uh, on baptism, it's going to be a little bit more about the nitty gritty about baptism, the physicality of baptism. So... uh, The first question to answer then is, why does the church baptize at all? So to answer that question, we've got to look at two places. Firstly, we've got to look at John chapter two. You might not recognize just from the chapter number, but when we get there, I, I know that you know this. Okay, so John chapter 2, on the third day, by the way, there are no coinc- there's no such thing in real life as a coincidence, and there's also no such thing in the Bible as a coincidence. That it says on the third day... It's not a coincidence, especially when it's in John's Gospel. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding, and when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. See? Yeah. We, just, she, we were just talking about this before yeah, class. I
1: saw one last night, the, an actual stone.
0: She was a watching a, a program, and yeah. they were showing the actual... You can, you can see... Uh, the kinds of pots that are used, they have them in Cana still. You can go and look at them, and they're, they're big. I mean, a 20 or 30 gallon jug of wine. <laughs> That's like the Costco special. <laughs> so, uh, six of these, Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, he did not know where it came from. But the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, his, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. So there is a, a sense of prudence in the idea that you would serve all of the best wine first and the not-so-great wine later Because by the time the folks have well drunk, as it says, they are well drunk. And your sense of taste and rationality, uh, those senses do not gain clarity or sharpness uh, the more wine you give them. So who cares that the bad wine is coming now? By the time you're to that point, nobody cares because the only thing they care about is... Here is more wine. Jesus does things a little bit backwards. Uh, The best wine is yet to come. But here is the most important part of this entire story for today, and that is what Mary says to Jesus, or to the servants, excuse me. Jesus says, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Anybody, with an ounce of reason, would hear that response and say, I don't think he's going to help. Mary doesn't. She knows her son. That's what he says to her, and she says, mm, okay, okay, okay. And the serv- to the servants she says, and this is what's important, whatever he tells you, do it. It's as simple as that. Why does the church baptize? Because the most important command that the church gets is the command that Mary gives the church. Whatever he tells you to do, just do it. Okay, let's uh, look at the Gospel of Matthew now. This is, by the way, a very good example of what I have been talking about, that the Bible is not just an old book. That's why if you, if you really pay attention to a sermon on Sunday morning, I, I talk about this in Bible class all the time, I've already talked about it in catechumenate, language matters. Even the tiniest, little, the tiniest little pieces of language matter. So one thing if you pay very close attention to a sermon that you will notice is say I'm preaching on this text from John 2, I don't say they were at a wedding, Jesus did this, Mary had said to Jesus, it is they are at a wedding, Mary says this, they are doing this. It's a very small thing, but it makes a big difference. This isn't something that happened in the past. The Gospel, uh, as it is recorded and presented and proclaimed, is an active and ongoing thing. That Jesus transformed water into wine happened historically at one point in Cana of Galilee, yes. But why is it recorded and given to us in Scripture? Not so that we can say, oh, that was nice that Jesus did that back then. It's because the words of Mary are present tense. Whatever he says to you, do it. And they're not just to the servants, it's to the whole church through time. Jesus transforming water into wine and giving the best wine to people who don't deserve it or who maybe don't even recognize it is an ongoing act of Jesus. Nothing that happens in Scripture is something that just happens one time there are always deeper deeper implications, specifically within the Gospels. Now, let's look at Matthew 28. Matthew 28, the very end of the Gospel. You will also know this. More uh, than likely, your editors have put in a heading called the Great Commission. Then the 11 disciples went away. Wait a minute, I thought there were 12. What happened? This is just for context. Why is it 11? Judas Iscariot is is not here, correct. And Judas Iscariot is dead. Then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. Look at that. Do they get to choose the terms on which they meet with Jesus? No. no. Look at this. This is so important. The pl- they go to the place Jesus had appointed. Jesus says, I'm going to be here this time, this place. If you want to see me come here to this place at this time, that's where I'm going to be there. And they say, well, what about this place? He says, uh-uh. This is where I will meet you. Now look at that. That's also present tense for us now. Jesus is the one who sets the appointed times. Jesus is the one who sets the appointed place. Jesus is the one who governs how he interacts with us. So when Jesus says, this is how I want to interact with you, we do what Jesus says, and we just say, okay. We'll talk about faith towards the end of this class, but one thing that you need to know about faith is, the only thing you need to know about faith is, This, what does faith say? Faith says, amen. When Jesus says something, faith says, amen. Jesus says, hey, you're not in sin anymore. Your sins are forgiven. And faith says, amen. Jesus says, I've saved you. Now live a new life. Faith says, amen. Jesus says, come here to see me here. Faith says, amen. Jesus says, do this. Faith says, amen. Jesus is the one who sets the appointments. You don't. I used a line in my sermon on Sunday about fast food church, fast food Christianity, which is me being... uh, chain, chain neutral. But the reason I say that is because you don't get to have it your way. You can go to Subway and you tell them what you want on your sandwich and they do whatever you tell them to do. You can go to one of my favorite places, Culver's and they do it the way every place should do it, which is if you order a burger, it's meat and cheese. And if you want things on your burger, you tell them what you want on your burger. That's the best way to have a burger. Because I don't like people presuming to know what I would like to have on my burger. <laughs> but anyway, so you go to Culver's and they, you say, I would like, I would like. A butter burger please and they say what would you like on that and then you tell them what I want on my meal is this and if it comes and it isn't the way that you ordered it what do you do you take it back and you say this isn't what I wanted fast-food Christianity is the faith that you want The fast food church is the drive-through you walk in on a Sunday morning expecting all of your desires, wants, opinions, anything to be loved and nurtured and cherished and respected. But the Church of Christ is not that place. You can have opinions, but you don't necessarily have your opinions respected here because this is not a place of your opinion this is a place of Christ's word Jesus sets the appointments Jesus sets the standards, Jesus sets the stage Jesus does it all and faith just says amen not thy or not my will be done but thine (coughs) And Jesus came, oh, excuse me, uh, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things, excuse me, that I have commanded you, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Now let's just look here at the the Great Commission. Right there, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, blah, 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 teaching them to observe all things, blah, blah, blah. Okay, what is the the important verb, the most important verb? This is one of my favorite questions to ask in this class.
1: Baptizing?
0: Baptizing isn't a verb.
1: What's a verb again?
0: <laughs> Bapt, <laughs> baptizing <laughs> isn't a verb. It's a participle. Or a, ge, or a gerund. It has an I-N-G at the end. Yeah, but it's not the, it's not the direct action. So let me, let me rephrase that just to make it more clear, I guess.
1: Um, what is the
0: direct, the, the most important of the imperatives? No. That's the thing that everybody says. They always say, go. And that's always the problem. That's why I love asking this question, because the first thing people think of is, go. And you see that there are problems with that. If that's the most important part of this is the go, then we just spend all of our time, well, we've we got to go out. We've got to evangelize. We've got to focus on missions. And I made a joke here in, in Bible class a few weeks ago. I said, uh, now, you wouldn't know this, this is sort of a blight on Missouri Synod Lutheran history in the 90s. Uh, we had a, a synodical president who was maybe not the best of presidents, nothing personal against the guy. Uh, this is a hot mic, so this is. I, I am very charitable, maybe not the best of district presidents. Uh, They had a program called Ablaze, which was a synod-wide program, Ablaze, and it was all focused on the going. And it was a huge money pit. Synod spent three million dollars on pens so that you could give pens out to people. (laughs) Because it's the Great Commission. Because that's what Jesus is talking about, right? Pens. Where, you know, it doesn't say here, but the disciples had some schnazzy pens when they went around, you know. <laughs> right? It's not the going. In fact, in the Greek, the go is not even an imperative. In the Greek, it's, and when you go out from this place, I want you to make disciples. That is the focus. Jesus says, make disciples. And we do what Mary said we should do, which is what? Do Do what he says. So why does the church baptize? Because we do what Jesus says, and Jesus said to baptize. That is the most simple of all of the answers. Now, we can, we can talk all day, and we can talk till we're blue in the face about, well, because baptism does this, and baptism is good for you, and baptism is you know, everything we've already talked about. All of that, it's all true. That's all what baptism is and does. But what is the primary reason for us, for the church, doing it? Jesus said so. You know, sometimes, I remember being really frustrated by this when I was a kid, and now that I am a parent, I implement it myself, because every good parent is a hypocrite, because they are the people who said of their own parents, I will never be like that, until they are a parent and they realize, ooh, you know, they maybe knew what they were doing, and then you become that. And uh, that thing is, when you ask why? And your parents say, because I said so. <laughs> why, do I, why do you want me to do this? Because I said so. Go and do it. And, and the honest truth is, what more of an answer do you require than that? You honestly don't. Jesus says go and baptize, you say, well why? Jesus said so. And that is enough. It doesn't nullify the fact that baptism is what it is and does what it does, but the bottom line is, Jesus told us to do it, and and he he had his reasons, and certainly some of the reasons are probably because of what baptism is and does. But the base level is because Jesus said so. But that's not the only thing the church is called to do either. He says, baptize and teach. Make disciples, how? By baptizing and by teaching. Making disciples is the command, and baptizing is a part of the command to make disciples. The other part is teaching. So, this is why, by the way, it is better for you never to have been baptized at all than to have been baptized and never taught, or to be baptized and live completely outside of the Christian faith, because now there are expectations for you who are baptized. Now you're supposed to learn and grow and mature and be taught, and if you throw it away, then there's problems. G.K. Chesterton, who if you, don't, if you don't know anything about him, you should read him. Great. Fabulous. Uh, so Chesterton writes, he has this little quote, and he says that The the pagan and the apostate, and an apostate is somebody who has rejected the faith. So a pagan in will, and by all accounts in deed, and yet somebody who still bears the brand of the name of God. Said the the difference between a pagan and an apostate is the same difference between a virgin and an adulteress neither of them has a husband but one of them is the worse off for it. The, pa- the virgin has no husband but she has never known a man. The adulteress had a husband and did know a man and cast him aside, which is worse. You see, that's, that's the thing. So the church has to be very focused on the teaching side of things too. It's not enough for us to you know, have a baptism mobile that we then drive around in and say, well, God commanded us to baptize, so we'll just have a bunch of strangers come in here, we'll baptize them, and then we'll just leave them. And then the question is, what good does that do? That's like, remember, the analogy from last week is that baptism is your admittance to the hospital. So that's like nurses getting in the hospital van driving around to people's homes that are sick, slapping on the hospital bracelet, and then walking away. What good does it do? It doesn't do any. It's just a poor fashion decision at that point. So baptism and teaching, instructing, they all go together. So what is it to be a disciple? Well, first it's to bear the mark of your Lord, to be brought in, and then once you're in, what do you do? You sit in the dirt at Jesus' feet, and you listen to what he says, and you say, Amen. And what that doesn't mean is that you're unthinking, that you turn into some kind of drooling, brainwashed idiot, "Mm -hmm, okay, yeah, amen, but that you think a different way. Faith means you have to be a little bit less reasonable. So, you know, the resurrection. If you're going to be extremely reasonable, by all accounts, you have to deny the resurrection. So, faith demands that you be a little less reasonable. Not unreasonable, just a little less reasonable. Okay? So, that's why, by the way, the church has confirmation. Confirmation and baptism go together. Confirmation and the Lord's Supper do not. They don't go together at all. Never have in the history of the Church in the 2,000 years that it existed until the Lutheran Church in America in the 1870s, or 1880s, excuse me. The 1880s was when that changed. So that's why I said last week what's given at the font is nourished at the altar. Baptism connects to the Lord's Supper. The sacraments are all intertwined. You can't have one without the other. But baptism is also connected to confirmation, in that confirmation is the instruction portion of the baptism. So when you are confirmed, what confirmation is, is the church saying, hey, you have been instructed in the basics of the faith, and now you know everything that you need to know to start being a good adult Christian. That's what it is, and we'll talk much more about that at a later time. So, any questions here about any of this? We do what Jesus says. Jesus says, hey, when you go out from this place, make disciples. We say, oh, how do we make disciples? He says, it's easy. You just baptize and you teach. And then we say, okay, well, we'll do, you know, your mother told us that we're supposed to listen to you, so we're going to. Whatever you say, Jesus, we're going to do it. He says, good. Go baptize and, and teach. Baptize and teach. Baptize and teach. So we do it. Now, what's the benefit of baptism? Well, you're joined to Christ. You're a son of God. You're never alone. This is your new reality. Jesus in baptism is closer to you than your own skin is. Jesus is over you. He is on you. He is inside you. He is within you. That's what baptism is. Jesus is... All over you. Uh, Jesus promises that he will be with you. Look at this. Lo, I will be with you even to the end of the age. Yes?
1: How important is it differentiating from Jesus being in you and the Holy Spirit dwelling within you? I mean, like, how important is it differentiating the persons of the Trinity with regards to how they are with you? I, I mean, obviously, yeah. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. Sure. And I've, always, I've heard it more that. Like when you become regenerate, you have the Holy Spirit in you. That necessarily saying Jesus in you.
0: Sure, sure. Well, yeah, Yeah, and I mean, are they
1: completely interchangeable?
0: Well, part of the nature of the Trinity is yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are distinct persons, but the Trinity is always the Trinity. Mm -hmm. So it's never it's never just the Spirit. So the question is, then, that I would ask you is, whose spirit is it?
1: The Holy Spirit? But that's yeah. The but I'm saying,
0: yeah, it, right. It's Jesus' spirit. How does Jesus interact? How does the Word interact with his people right now? Through his spirit. How do you separate wor- the, the words that you speak from the breath that delivers them? You can't. You can't. This is, and I love this, because if you read... If you read Narnia, you know, just like here in, in, uh, in the Gospels, Jesus breathes on his disciples. Well, Aslan breathes on the children, and I have always laughed. Because when I grew up, we had the old, the, the old BBC radio drama versions of the Chronicles of Narnia that we would also listen to. And they're really good. If you can find them nowadays, I, they're hard to find. But if you can find them, they're great. They're very well produced. David Suchet Poirot, if you he's the voice of Aslan. But anyway, so there's a, comes to the part where he breathes on the children, and I laugh every single time I even think about this because he comes, he says, children. <sighs> and it's just like how do you he breathed on them and said. They're not independent. (sighs) Okay, now, it's, hey, um, I'm going to speak a word to you, and that word is blah, 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 blah. whatever the word is, but how do you separate the word that is being spoken from the breath that speaks it and delivers it? It's impossible. Well, how do you separate the word of God from the spirit of God that delivers, works in the word? Well, you can't. So it's the Spirit of Jesus, it is, so it is the Holy Spirit, but it's also the Spirit of Jesus, and that's also Jesus. So, in that sense, yeah, it's, it's the delivering of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is never doing anything for himself. The Holy Spirit's entire task is to point to and deliver Jesus to you. Jesus wants to touch you. How is, how is his touch delivered? By the Holy Spirit. Right, so I would say the short answer to your question is, how important is it to differentiate not important? You know, we don't deny the scriptural truths like Titus that says uh, we're washed through the Holy Spirit. Well, sure, but what's the other part of that? Whom he, that is the Father, poured out on us through Jesus. So you have the entire Trinity working there. But who is the face, to you, of the Trinity? Jesus. Jesus. Who is the incarnate Trinity? Who is the the God that you interact with? It is Jesus. That's why in in the New Testament, like in the book of Acts, Jesus Christ is Lord. Who do they preach? They proclaim Jesus as our God, as the dead and resurrected God. It's not that they're saying, Yahweh doesn't exist, or the Spirit doesn't exist, but it's the fact that the form that it all takes, the way that he chooses to interact, is in Jesus. Does that answer your question? Yeah, so it's not wrong to say yeah, it's the Holy Spirit that's living in you. It would be wrong if you said it's only the Holy Spirit and the, the other persons of the Trinity aren't. But to say that the Spirit is living in you, or to say that Jesus is living in you, more or less are actually saying the same thing. Yeah. So you are joined to Jesus, Jesus is joined to you. It's almost like a wedding, this baptism. One flesh, but with Jesus. Now here you are. Um, Jesus is closer to you than your own self. You're never alone, you're never unwanted, you're never unloved as long as you're baptized because Jesus is always the one who is with you. Jesus is always the one who will want you. Jesus is always the one who loves you. That's an an important thing uh, because there's often the question, how do I... How do I accept the fact that Jesus loves me when I don't love myself? And it's very easy not to love yourself, especially once you know what I am supposed to be. It's very easy then to become so discouraged because you realize that you aren't what you are supposed to be or you dwell on the fact that I had the decision not to sin and I still chose to sin. Then you hate yourself. And Again, the answer to that is how do I live with myself or how do I love myself or how do I accept the fact that Jesus does when I hate myself? Well, the answer is don't listen to yourself. (laughs) Jesus loves you. How do you learn to love yourself? Well, first by learning to love Jesus and then when you learn to love Jesus you will learn how to love yourself because of how Jesus loves you. Nothing is ever about you. Even your act of loving or hating yourself is not really about you. If it is about you, you, know, you will only ever hate yourself. But if it's ever about Christ, then that's the point where you start looking at yourself not the way that you do, but the way Christ looks at you. Yes?
1: I've heard the worldly wisdom of you can't love others until you love yourself first, but Christianity seems to be the exact opposite of that, where you have to, Like, it's not that you love yourself first, it's that you love God first, and then you can love others.
0: Yes, yeah, so everything stems forth from the love of God. And and the love of God is an ambiguous phrase because the love of God can mean either God's love for you or your love for God. But in this case, it's ambiguous on purpose because it is both. Mm -hmm. So here's the fun thing about the church, okay? Typically, if you are asked an either-or question in the church, like, when you say, Pastor, the love of God, do you mean the love that we have for God or the love that God has for us? Then I have the privilege of being able to say, yes. (laughs) Why does it have to be a choice? Why can it not be both? Because in fact it is both. Um, There's this, that's where you have to learn to be a little bit less reasonable because if you want to be wholeheartedly reasonable, it has to be one, it can't be both. Why can't it be? Because the way things work in the world are it has to be one or it has to be the other, but that's not the way things really work. It can be both, and that's okay. So you learn that it is both. You learn that God loves you, and in God loving you, you learn to love God. That's what John talks about. We love him because he first loved us, the love of God. It's a love that is given, and the fact that it is given then allows it to be reciprocated. And in loving, in your love of God, you learn to love the self because you see how God loves you, and you learn to love your neighbor because you see how God loves your neighbor. So baptism is a transformative thing. It makes you into something that you were not before. And baptism is then your primary attribute. Who are you? I am baptized. And you always have to answer it, I am baptized. You never answer it, I was baptized, because baptism is not a thing of the past. If it was a thing of the past, we wouldn't have the font right in there when you go into church. The fact that you walk by that font and you go through water every time you come back to the house of God is a reminder to you that the waters into which you once entered are a continual Thing. It, it's continually acting. It is ongoing. You are baptized because daily your old Adam is being drowned and dying, and daily a new man is aris- arising and emerging. It's a, it's a continual thing. So, questions about that? <laughs> uh, okay, so what does baptism entail? Now, we kind of, You kind of already know this, but I'm going to shock you a little bit. And the question is, what do you need for baptism? There are how many things that you need for baptism? Two, three. That's where the shock comes from. Okay. You need three things for baptism. What are the first two? You need water. You need water. How much water? just some water. (laughs) You can have a lot of water, you can have a drop of water. So here's a fun story. I knew a guy, he's he's a pastor now, and he did his vicarage, this was a while ago, he's quite a bit older than I am. He did his vicarage in, I think it was inner city Baltimore, and there was one night, I think, he had confirmation class, and the students had all left, and he was leaving the church to go home, and A drive-by shooting happened car came right around the corner drove right by him and shot up a building and then drove off and there was a girl who was walking who got caught in the crossfire and she was laying in the gutter bleeding out so this guy ran out there and kinda held on to the girl as she was dying and he looked over and if you don't believe in miracles you're not looking You're not paying attention. Looked around and there just happened to be an unopened bottle of water sitting right next to the girl, just sitting there right on the curb. So he cracked that bottle of water open and he baptized the the girl right there. How much water do you need? A drop? A bottle? A pond? A lake? A swimming? However, however much. You just need some water. Yes?
1: That. In a pinch, it has been done. Okay. Yeah.
0: It it has been done. Sometimes you there are these. I, I will say that it would not. It was not definitely the normal thing. Right. Like people don't bring babies to church and have pastor like. Ah, all right, <laughs> you know it's like. But but in in a pinch, sure you know. Jesus puts. Jesus spits into the dirt and makes makes the paste and heals with his own saliva. So, you know, I know of at least one pastor that has done that because it was the only thing that he could do. And then would we say, well, is that really a baptism? You say, hmm? Sure. I don't, I'm not going to ask the question. Be, learn to be a little less reasonable. Now, all I had was a two liter of Sprite. Does that, It's like, if you have the choice between a two liter of Sprite and licking your finger, I would just lick your finger. <laughs> you know, it's best to not get too far removed. That's the thing with the sacrament too, uh, or the, 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 the Eucharist, excuse me. So it's, well, Jesus used unleavened bread. Can I use Wonder Bread? That's still bread, isn't it? Can I use rye bread? Can I use pumpernickel? Uh, can I use a pretzel? Can I use a, a cracker, a saltine? And, you know, it's like, oh, is, this, is this bread? I mean, maybe, technically speaking, but it's best just to not stray too far because the further away that you stray from the original, the more questions are introduced and the more opportunities for doubting, and it's just best to keep it as close as you possibly can so that there is none of that. Could Jesus give you the Eucharist in a saltine? I mean, I'm sure he could, but am I 100% confident about the saltine like I would be about the actual unleavened bread? No. So it's best to stay closer to where you're confident. So, you know, if spit is the only thing you have, then spit is the only thing you have, but I would never go any further removed than spit, Uh, which happens to be uh, something most folks have aplenty. So you never really need to go beyond that. Okay. So what do you need for baptism? Well, all right, you need water. What else do you need? The Word. You need the Word, right. Now here's the kicker, though. What is the third ingredient? The baptizer, yes, very good. Now, you you said it that way, which is perfectly correct the way that I would always say it is, you need an apostle. Mm -hmm. You need an apostle. You need water, you need word, and you need an apostle. Now, keep in mind that this is the norm. This is the way that Jesus says, hey, baptism should be like this. This is the way it should probably go. This is the order of things. If there is an emergency and something absolutely must be done, well, of course, we have have a right for emergency baptism, and then you can, and we would entrust that to the grace of God. Uh, But hard cases make bad law, so the emergencies are never the thing that determine what the standard practice is. Just because something is permissible in an extreme case doesn't mean it is permissible generally. So I'm speaking of the general, the basic order of things that Jesus says, hey, this is how things should go. You need an apostle. And why do you need, why, why apostle and not just baptizer? What's the difference? Why would I? Yes, in the order of things, the apostle is the one who has the authority of Christ and the direct command, do this. Therefore, the apostle is the one who does it. So who is the apostle here? (coughs) Excuse me, me. I am the apostle because I have the apostolic office. The 12 apostles were ordained by Jesus. They ordained people. Those people, they ordained then had the office of the apostles. Then they ordained some people. Then they were apostolic office. And it goes on and on and on. There's the laying of the hands and what Peter gave to so-and-so, to so-and-so, to so-and-so, to so-and-so, to so-and-so, to so-and-so, throughout the entire office of the ministry, that act of ordination is the creating of an apostle in the sense that it is the giving of the apostle's office and authority. Yes, sir? You said when that. Lady was dying. Like that guy came over at that What was he? Was he just somebody off the street? He was a he was a vicar. So that's like a student teacher pastor. Okay. So he was a seminarian. He was not ordained. Uh, but it's still it's still. Okay. I wouldn't question it. I would. That's one of those things that is. I mean, the girl's bleeding out and there's a bottle of water. Does he say, well, hold, on. you just hold on a minute. Let me call the pastor. Or, you know, you give birth and the baby has three minutes to live. Can I call the pastor and have him be here in time to do this? If your baby has three days to live, sure, call the pastor. If it's three minutes, then you kind of, in an emergency like that, that so that's one of those outlying emergency cases. And even in a case like that, then, you know, technically what the church would do is the church would ratify that, where the church would say, this happened, so, and actually if there's a baptism, an emergency baptism there's that's what you're supposed to do is bring everybody to church and then the next time everybody's in church say, this person was baptized by this person with water and the word and therefore we're not going to mess around with it, we're going to bless the baptism and entrust this to the grace of God and then call it done. That's the way it works. So, you need an apostle. Well, there you go. There's your three things. What does baptism do? Well, it saves you, according to Peter. So I'm going to hand this out. We've got just...
1: Oh, right. Because that sentence is really complicated. Pardon me? So that's why you have to send this diagram. That's why I have the really sentence diagram. Sentence.
0: Because it is a complicated sentence. But so it's not the Greek. It's not diagrammed in the Greek. It's diagrammed in the English.
1: Uh, I thought this was a class where we would learn something.
0: <laughs> you want me to diagram <laughs> this in the Greek for you? Yeah,
1: we're, we're supposed to learn Greek.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, I'm I'm humbled that you had such high expectations. <laughs> so, okay, here's, here's the deal, right? This is 1 Peter 3.21. Now, why are we looking at the diagram? Because I want you to see what what the epistle actually says. See, Sophie and Cameron and Mason, if you were here, you guys don't even know what you're looking at, I'll bet you, because you've never had to do this before. And you, it's probably to your detriment. You should, you should do it. Uh, you should learn how to diagram sentences. I had to do it. My mother was a grammarian. I, ha- I, had, to, I had to do all this and you know, go up to the... To write it out and have her correct it and... But this, it teaches you the structure of language, how things work together. So you take a big long sentence and then you pull out, here is the subject, here is the object, here is the verb, and then how does everything else fit in? Well, here, here is the thing about 1 Peter. It says, baptism saves you. Everything else connects and is built on the sentence, baptism saves you. And the reason that this is important is because it is declarative. Baptism really does what the Lord says baptism does. Uh, It makes disciples. It connects with confirmation. I am baptized and I am being taught. Therefore, I am a disciple. It, It declares the reality that God works in this water to save. I was dead and now I am made alive. Here I am. It has saved me. Uh, There are some that would argue that this verse doesn't mean what it says, and I say it's very difficult to argue with the diagram of the sentence, and for those interested in the Greek, it would more or less be diagrammed the same. Baptism saves you. It isn't symbolic. It is reality. It is important to know that the sacraments are reality.
1: It's, it's interesting that if people say when baptism saves you is symbolic, the word save there is symbolic, why would they not believe that? When, Jesus, when it says Jesus saves you, why would they not also mean that to be symbolic? Like they, I don't get how they can have it where it's real in one sense and symbolic in the other sense. Is either symbolic the whole time or real the whole time?
0: Yes, I would agree with that critique. Either it's always symbolic or it's always real, but it can't be, this is an occasion where it can't be both things at once. It can't be a symbol and the real thing. It has to be either or. Mm-hmm. And we fall on the side in the Lutheran church, which is, which is the historic side, actually, of baptism actually does something. And that's why we hold it in high regard. Now, but that's the thing. Baptism does something. Not everybody even on this side of church history, agrees on the exact thing that baptism does but what they do agree on is it does something and the biggest thing of what it does is that it saves and then there are these other things, well do you think it does this also and well maybe we don't think it does that also but we can at least say it does something, it's the Lord's work and it saves. And that's frankly, to, to be honest, even being nitpicky, that's enough for me. Hey. So uh, I'll, I'll kind of send this to you uh, to take. Uh, the, the last two things I'm going to send out is, uh, are um, firstly, this just a little handout about faith. What is faith? It's more than what you need to know. What you need to know is this. What is faith? Faith is love. That's the bottom line. Faith is love. And what does faith say? It says Amen because what does faith do? It agrees with Jesus. Faith and belief, they are agreeing with Jesus. Unbelief is disagreeing with Jesus. One says amen, the other says no, I don't think so. That's the bottom line, faith is love. Um, It might surprise some people to know that Lutherans, only believe in believer baptisms. In fact, historically, the entire time that the church has been alive, the church as a whole has only ever practiced believer baptisms. The question isn't, do you baptize believers or not? The question really is, who is a believer? or who can be a believer. That's why adults typically were and very often are not baptized right away when they want to be. They are given a period of instruction first. But why a child is baptized immediately because the assumption is the child can and does believe in a way that the adult doesn't here's the problem with you adults would you like I, this is my major critique of you the problem with you adults is that you don't believe there is a monster under your bed And why don't you believe in the monster under your bed? Because you're too smart to believe in that because you know there's no such thing as monsters and you know that because there's no such thing as monsters, no thing like that is going to live under your bed. But the problem with that is now you are too rational. You are too reasonable. And therefore, if the question is posed, are you, shall we get washed with a little bit of water that's going to raise you from the dead because you're dead right now and is going to fill you up with the person of Jesus Christ through his Holy Spirit? Would you like that? Do you understand all of that? The answer is, no way! Because <laughs> you're too reasonable and too rational. But a child, this is why a child is better than you because a child does believe in that monster under their bed. In fact, the child is so convinced that the monster does exist and that it does live under their bed that they have to come and get you to protect them. And it doesn't matter how much you tell them there is no such thing as monsters and there is no monster under this bed, they will still believe it. And that's why they're baptized. Because they retain a sense of wonder and imagination that also is reflective of faith. Yes? You're
1: basically saying the whole age of accountability thing is completely backwards, where it's like when a child is old enough to reason, that's when they yeah. not, maybe not, should be when,
0: when the child is old enough to reason, that's when you start to have problems. Because reason rationality, yes, it is a gift of God, but it is so often used against God. Why does the world not believe in the resurrection? Because reasonably, it couldn't have happened. Let's be rational here. Hey, let's sit down and have a conversation. Let's be reasonable, shall we? That couldn't happen. But I don't want to be reasonable. Or at the very least, I want to be less reasonable. Because I want to retain, this is the the thing in the church, you want to retain that childlike sense of wonder. That's why when we talk about the sacraments, the better word is the the word that St. Paul uses himself, which is the mysteries. Enjoy a little bit of wonder. What's going on here? I don't know, it's a mystery. Is there a monster under my bed? I don't know, maybe. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. But I'm open to the possibility. And maybe, just maybe, maybe, just maybe, your child is the one who sees better than you do. Maybe there really is a monster under that bed. And you're so reasonable, you just can't see it. So that's why the whole age of accountability, adults are the ones that the Church has questioned baptizing. The Church never questioned baptizing children. Uh, and there's a reason for that so this is these are just my quotes from uh, from some of the most notable of the church fathers that talk about uh, baptizing children so that you can see that when we say yeah the church baptizes babies and pretty much always has that's actually the truth the idea that we wouldn't baptize a baby is a newer one in the history of the church and if you want something even more than this, there is a whole packet that I have that I did not put together, and I typically don't hand it out because it's really thick, and it also was written in a font that I don't care for, and it was formatted in a way that I don't care for. So, But if you really, really want more than even what's on this handout, I can give you an entire packet of stuff like that that's just quotes from the Church Fathers about baptism and quotes about Bible texts dealing with baptism and how they interpret that in light of children. So quickly here, why, why do we baptize? Well, excuse me, who, who do we baptize? Well, all who desire to follow Christ, all who desire to be joined to Jesus, all who desire to live in him. That's who we baptize. And this includes children, one, because they die, If baptism is life and salvation and death before you die, wouldn't it be nice if we actually gave it to all of the people who can die so that they die before they die? So we baptize children. Babies are sinful, uh, so you know that they're going to die. Now, here's the thing. St. Augustine has a really great quote. He says, The strength of an infant does not lie in its body, but in its will. Anybody who's ever had an infant knows that. That infant isn't going to bench you or deadlift you, but that infant is going to get you wrapped around its tiny, tiny little fingers from the day you bring it home from the hospital. That baby cries and what do you do? You run to it and they learn. They want to assert their wills over you. They want what they want and they want you to give them what they want. That's the strength of an infant. If you want the most perfect illustration of original sin, it is the infant. Nobody's going to look at that baby and say, oh, how sweet and innocent. (laughs) Mm, No. You can look at an adult and maybe say, how sweet and innocent, but not an infant, not at all. Two, why do we baptize a baby? because it's God who's doing the baptism and not the baby. When we, you know, we have the responses as part of the, the baptismal liturgy, and those responses have more or less been the same, you know, not, they're not identical, but more or less the structure is kind of the same. And uh, the questions about, hey, do you believe? Do you desire to be baptized? Now we just had a baptism, what, two weeks ago, a week ago? Last past, week this Sunday. last Sunday, okay. Time flies. I don't know what weighs up. Uh, so we just had a baptism. That infant, was the infant the one answering the questions? Do you believe, little baby? Yes, I believe. Now, boy, what a miracle that would be. <laughs> no, the baby's not the one answering the questions. Who answers the questions? Parents and sponsors, on behalf of that child. Why? What's the reason for that? that's it because the baby just physically can't do it those responses are what the baby would say if the baby could say but the baby can't say so somebody else has to give voice to the baby but all of the questions that you're being asked you know that this child answers in the affirmative too just doesn't have the voice to do it so the baby can believe because belief is not your own act, it's a working of God. You cannot call to me unless I first called to you. And who's to think that God does not first call even to the little children? So we baptize. Those are the the two reasons. One, because they die, because they're sinful. They need to be raised from the dead, they need to die before they die, they need the forgiveness of sins, they need life, they need Jesus. And two, because Jesus is the one who's doing the baptism and not them, so it doesn't really matter if they can stand up and use their own words or not, Jesus is the one who's doing it. It's not dependent upon their cooperation, which is fun sometimes, because you know, sometimes they don't cooperate. Although, here's, this is a fun story, and this is kind of where we'll end. Um, there was a baptism once that I, I did, and you know, the baptism begins with an exorcism, and the child was... Aah! They say, therefore depart, you unclean spirit, and make room for the Holy Spirit to enter in in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And then the child goes, <laughs> I tell you, if you don't believe in miracles, you're just not looking. <laughs> oh, this, it's, it's funny little things like that. You just, you can't, you can't do anything other than laugh and say, wow, well, thanks be to God. Yes, sir. Do you still baptize a stillborn baby? No, I would not baptize a stillborn baby. No, baptism is for the living, uh, uh, not for the dead. But that's a good question because then it opens up this door. Can a baby who was born uh, before the, or who died, excuse me, before the opportunity for baptism still be saved? Because Jesus says things like, you know, unless you are reborn, you cannot be saved. Unless you receive the kingdom of heaven as a little child, you cannot enter it. You can by no means enter it. Whoever does not believe, or whoever believes and is baptized is saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. So then the question is, no, I wouldn't baptize a a stillborn baby because baptism is for the living, not for the dead. It doesn't do any good to the dead. Uh, It is for those who are alive. so, is there hope for the stillborn child? Yeah, you would. Uh, we would say, now. We would say yes. Not not everybody would. In fact, not all Lutherans would. The the Wisconsin Synod actually has a a dogmatic position that they take that says babies born outside of baptism who die before baptism are hundred percent dead, and and they are they are in hell. Uh, in fact, my aunt had a number of miscarriages, and we grew up in the so we were in the Christian Reformed Church, and then. We, we were looking for a different body to join and we were seriously considering Wisconsin Synod until my aunt said, so wait, you're telling me that all, I don't know, five or so of my babies that I miscarried, that died in my womb, they're all in hell? And the pastor said, yep, that's the way of it. So not everybody, in fact, some LCMS pastors actually believe that too. So it's, it's not... Um, it's not foreign, but it is incorrect, and uh, that's one of those scenarios where the question is, can God save apart from baptism? And the answer, of course, is yes, He can. God, How does God choose to save ordinarily through baptism? But baptism requires a certain order. I mean, you have to be born first, you have to be alive so that you can receive that baptism. But if that order is broken, well then you can't follow it. So we trust in the grace and mercy of God who has revealed himself to be a God of the living and not a God of the dead. And in the knowledge that the child even in utero does can and does have faith and can trust in the Lord and have faith in the Lord and believe we don't say that the child who was born did not believe, or that the child in the womb did not believe. And the Lord says, whoever does not believe will be condemned, not whoever is not baptized. So that's, that's kind of the uh, avenue that we would take there. Yes? So the
1: baby in the uterus was regenerate? I mean, if in sin my mother conceived me?
0: No, the, ba- the, baby, is, the baby has sin
1: also can have faith
0: yes yeah. but
1: can have faith from God giving the baby faith
0: yes now that's the thing about baptism is baptism receives or baptism is received by and creates faith so you have to have faith to receive baptism but baptism is also the thing then that gives faith how do we rectify that easy the best place to look The book of Acts and the Ethiopian eunuch. You know this story. Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip is there. He sees the Ethiopian eunuch. He's reading Isaiah and he doesn't understand it. That There's one thing there. Everybody needs an apostle to preach the word to them. So he's reading, what does this mean? I don't know what this means. And uh, Philip preaches to him. And he says, I want to be baptized. Is that faith that says, I want to be baptized? Mm-hmm. Yes. How can he have faith if he, didn't, if he wasn't baptized? See, that's the thing. If you believe in believer baptism, then you also have to say that the person who's going to be baptized has a degree of faith. And this is the way we would say it. There is such a thing as primitive faith. A faith will always drive you to the place where Jesus is, and the Spirit will always push you to where Jesus is, which means that you will always be pushed toward baptism because that is what Jesus said, and that is where Jesus is, and that is where Jesus works. But if you die on your way there, do we then say, oh, just a bit outside, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh. sucks for you. I mean, is that the way that we look at that? No. If the, if the Ethiopian eudic had had a heart attack and keeled over before hopping into the mud puddle to be baptized, would Philip have said, Oh, rats! Well, no hope for this guy. Well, no. The, the Spirit creates faith through the Word and the proclamation of it. This is kind of a funny thing because, you know, what are, what are people always on about with, with, with pregnant women? Well, what are, you, need to, you need to work on the baby's development in the womb. Right? How do you do that? Baby Mozart. Baby Mozart. Put the, put the headphones on your, on your belly and let the, let the baby listen to the Mozart or Bach or Beethoven, whatever. You can go to the store and you can buy the baby Bach, baby Mozart. It helps with development in the womb. So you're telling me and I don't think you're wrong in saying that the baby can listen to the music, but you're telling me that the baby can listen to the music and have its physical development and and brain function stimulated by listening to music from outside the womb that works its way in, but that the preaching of the word of God and the working of the Holy Spirit somehow finds a barrier and an impediment in the flesh of the mother? No, I don't think so if the music gets in there, so much more does the holy spirit get in there. I mean, your your children recognize your voice. Don't you think that they would recognize the voice of their lord too? So, yes, they are sinners in the womb, which is why when they emerge from the womb, we want to bring them to baptism quickly. We want to make sure they are baptized. But if they don't if something happens to them between the womb and the font, we don't just say, well, that's a lost cause. Because the Holy Spirit was still working in them. The Holy Spirit still was delivering the word to them. The person of the, Trinity, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus was still placing his touch on them. But then post-baptism, that primitive faith is expanded and begins to mature. Is that an acceptable answer for you? Okay,
1: But this essentially applies to babies of Christians, not necessarily this is the nature of all babies.
0: Yes, I would agree with that. And when you start thinking about those implications, then the horrors of abortion become all the worse. Because not only is it the active taking of a life, but it, in some cases, is also the active condemnation of a child that had not received any proclamation of the Word or working of the Spirit. And that thought is an incredibly awful thought. Now we would still say that we entrust them to the grace of God because that's the only thing that we can do at that time. But but for the Christian parents that are coming to church and that lose a child, then you can say with certainty, yes, well, the the Holy Spirit was still working on that child, and although the normal method of operation is not salvation apart from baptism, when salvation from baptism is impossible, that is not to say that the Lord cannot do that or that he doesn't wish to. He just wishes the normal thing to be this. in other cases, all that we can really say is, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. You love children and you desire them in your kingdom, and that kingdom is for them. Don't turn them away through the negligence of of their parents. You know, that kind of thing. Well, on a lighter note, when Jennifer was pregnant with Cameron, she, instead of listening to Mozart, she put tractor sounds and... Uh, <laughs> Well, that explain, explains Ford. a lot. <laughs> it really worked its way in there, didn't yes, it? it <laughs> Stimulated some kind of development. <laughs> I couldn't help it. Ken. Uh, okay. This whole, you know, what faith is and what faith is not, you just can take that home. Uh, uh, that's for you to read. The, the basic points are that faith is passive, which means faith receives, faith agrees. So any time now from this point forward that I said what does faith do, that's always the answer. Faith agrees. That's the thing faith does. It agrees. Jesus says do this. Faith says yes sir, all right, amen. Hey, Faith lives and it's communal. These are sort of just the basic descriptions of the things that faith are. Faith is a personal thing but it's never a private thing. Okay. There are no independent Christians. Any other questions? I know we, this is a little bit long and I am sorry but it was good talk.
1: The Jordan River, was
0: it always as dirty as they show? Yeah, don't you? So Naaman, Naaman the, the Syrian, you know, he goes to be healed of his leprosy and he gets mad because he goes to see this great prophet and the prophet sends a servant out to go see him and he says, just go wash in the Jordan seven times and he said and he says isn't there aren't there waters that are better than this this is you, this is the place you want me to go in the, this water you want me to go in here and get clean in this water but but yes it is a it is a dirty it's like chocolate milk <laughs> it, it does yes it does okay let us pray lord remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray our father who lord, art in heaven hallowed lord, be thy, lord, thy name lord, thy kingdom come